Hi, Rom Squad. Rom Squad. Boop, 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 boop. <laughs> I feel like we need air horns. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, you've got Nissan and, <laughs> and Nana. Um, and we're, you know, hell yeah. Hell yeah. So, Nana, you want to do our little intro about why we started sure. this podcast? I did sure. So, Hialya is H-E-A-L-L, as you probably have noticed. And that is not a spe- spelling error. That is not because we're afraid to say the word hell. It's because H-E-A stands for happily ever after in Rom speak. And our idea is that we kind of look for pleasure wherever we can. And we both find a lot of pleasure in the romance genre. So every other week, Nissan and I get together and we look for our own happily ever afters by getting deep and probing and just kind of like analyzing different works of the romance genre. And just a little background about us. Um, we're two friends. We're lawyers. We went to college together and we both kind of like discovered that we both love romance, though Nissan was a little deeper into like reading romance novels and whatnot. Like, right, right, Nissan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and let's be honest, like Nana's being very like diplomatic when she says I'm a little deeper. I am a romance novel obsessive. And I finally decided to come out to my friends, for lack of a better term, about how much I love them. And most of them have indulged in me and Nana's taken the indulging to a great extent by doing this exactly. podcast with me. Exactly. <laughs> so I always loved kind of romance movies and all those things, but it was something that I kind of compartmentalized and didn't really take seriously. It was just kind of like fluff that I like, um, comfort food. But then when Misan started talking about romance novels, I had never really considered reading those. And I started to get into them because there are actually quite a lot of really good writers. And by p- pandemic, like, I was like reading a book a day because it was just like, it was what I needed to like find joy in my life. And so came back to her and was like, girl, you're right. And let's explore this interest even further. So we got the podcast. And now we have you guys, Rom Squad, a name that I clearly have like gotten used to. And Rom Squad, mm-hmm. how, whatever number you are, we're happy that you're listening and happy to have you guys here. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I'm telling you, like next episode, Nana, we're getting the air horn. Or do you remember from like yeah, World Cup with like when it was in South Africa and they had the Vuvuzelas? I feel like that's yeah, crazy. we can get the <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but as you can tell by the episode title, which the OG Genesis, which I cannot take credit for, that is all Nana. We are talking Thank about Thank Pride and Prejudice. Which for us is honestly, and not just for us, but for many, many people all over the world since, you know, Pride and Prejudice has sold like millions and millions of copies, is just like a revelation of a novel. And it was written in the 19th century and it still manages to endure to 2021. And I think that's something very impressive. And I think even if people don't love romance novels or will not confess to them, 
they can all have some sort of appreciation for Pride and Prejudice. And that's why we're excited to talk about it today. Yeah. And Nissan, okay, I'm just going to get a little serious. Can I be Lisa Frank with you for a moment? Oh my okay. God. Lisa um, Frank. Oh, <laughs> yeah, no, no, this is serious. This is serious. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. This is a serious moment. I'm listening. Okay. I'm listening. This is a serious moment because I just want everybody's expectations to be clear. Okay. I'm putting on my power suit today with like the big shoulder pads and the quickly cut heels because we're going straight to business. I'm not messing about. Okay. We have a lot of ground to cover and I would never dream about trying like messing this up. I don't fucks with Jane Austen, fucks around with Jane Austen. I don't fucks around with Pride and Prejudice. I'm very serious about it. And we are not going to do Jane Austen a disservice today. Yeah. I, so no. I mean business, you know, yeah, I'm a girl. You know? I, w- I want you guys to picture like, um, is it, was it Melanie Griffith in Working Girl? Who was it in Working Girl? Who, with the, like, yeah, it was Melanie Griffith. Yeah, it was like the 80s power suit and like Nana's hair mm-hmm. is like long and has that like, you know, curl and whatever. And it's just like that, that 80s like Aquanet and like made hair exactly. and power suit is what Nana is wearing. I am not wearing that. Because it's a pandemic, I'm in loungewear, but Nana means business, so we're just gonna go with her. <laughs> I mean business. I got the Oprah Winfrey like spray. Oh my god! Yes, and that lipstick, my that Oprah Winfrey lipstick. Also, I I just like it was like that berry color. I vividly remember that. It was all felt like an endearing yep. image of Oprah in the eighties. <laughs> anyway, exactly. Jane Austen, the um, OG. The OG. So yeah, this episode is going to be a little different in the sense that we have a lot of ground to cover. Um, And so, you know, it's going to be a bit structured, but we'll have fun with it. Um, So I just wanted to start by introducing everybody to Miss Jane Austen. Um, I, I realize that a lot of people know who Jane Austen is, but I don't know how many people actually have read Jane Austen. Mm. And I think like in my encounters with people, they're like kind of dismissive, right? Like it's like, oh, it's like the thing that like romantic little horse girls read, you know, girls who are just like, mm, prince, you know, and it's actually no. So I just wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about her um, just to get a sense. So she is English and she was born in 1775 and I don't really know what she looks like, but I always kind of imagined her like kind of sallow faced and sickly. Yeah, like a little mousy, like definitely <laughs> yeah. brown hair. She's definitely not a blonde. Definitely. Like she definitely had like brunette hair. Exactly. So like, let's go back. And it's, you know, it's the eve of the uh, American Revolution. This woman is born in England, um, you know, not in London, in some kind of countryside or whatever. And her father is a rector, which is basically like the preacher. So like these towns, you know, they had like their their churches and there were rich patrons of the church. And then there was like a pastor who was like in charge of the church. The whole thing about her family is that her father came from like a very old, respected and wealthy family of wool merchants and, you know, like over centuries, each generation of sons received inheritance it was divided and bad investments, whatever. And they ended up being poor. And so this is just relevant because a lot of her books are very detailed about economics, Mm -hmm. very fixated. I don't even know fixated, but very concerned. I think very direct in a way that might be... Like, I don't know necessarily that books 
in the 19th century when she was writing were really that clear. Um, I also think it's interesting that her family was never titled. They were wool merchants. So like they made money and they were respected mm. and wealthy, but they weren't aristocratic. And I wonder how much that informs, you know, the manner in which she writes about all of these sort of like, like class issues and economic issues, like you mentioned, Nana, because yeah, you can, it's almost like you can, it, she was someone that was like, outside of a window, like putting her hand on a window pane, like peeking in to like all the lords and that little ladies and the dukes and stuff. And she's able to sort of have that incisive commentary partially because of that. And then also because like you said, her family like devolved into poverty. Yeah. And then just, that's a great point. Just the clarification for those of you who aren't super familiar, like in England, there would be a, it's like not just about having money. There's a distinction Mm -hmm. between being like of the merchant class, which means you work for your money versus the landed class, which means you inherited land and wealth versus the aristocracy, which means you're titled. Uh, So it's not, you know, like it's not just having money. Yeah. So there were all these amongst people who were considered the upper middle to upper class of society, there were all these distinctions. And so she sounds like she was kind of at the cross section of all these things. Mm -hmm. And the other Mm -hmm. thing of, about a rector is that they oftentimes had like, um, you know, rich patrons, right? And so there's this like, you know, proximity or like being adjacent to very powerful and wealthy people. But of course, like understanding your place is beneath them. Um, so that's like a little background about Jane. And we just give that to you because these themes appear often in her novels and especially in Pride and Prejudice. Mm-hmm. Other thing. She wrote six novels, not that many. Um, she died like in her 40s and she died unmarried, which always used to blow my mind. Like, Same. I don't know why. Like she seemed so brilliant <laughs> and like fantastic. Yeah. But I wonder if she would have, I feel like she would have fared better now. <laughs> it was almost like she was one of those ladies that was before her time, right? I can imagine her family in the 19th century just being like, Jane is weird. Like, I know that the family's poor, but like, why is she writing books? Like, what's that about? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I, I think her family is like super into education and yeah. whatnot. But like, I, I feel like, you know, which is rare, right? For uh, being about your g- girls being educated. For sure. But I, I think I always imagined it. And again, we're not Jane Austen scholars. So don't come at us. If you yeah, like we're not professing for this to be like accurate. Okay, like we just calm down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like, you know, call us in if we're wrong and teach us. Don't yell at us. Um, <laughs> but I, I think what I always kind of, as I got older, I kind of, one, I think that, and you'll see in Pride and Prejudice, women have very little power in society and Mm. even though sometimes like the um it's presented like marriage is gonna like sort of bring you something right there's like a value added it's oftentimes for your family or to make sure you're well taken care of right but like a woman has no legal identity Mm. with especially when she's into like gets married um not to get too into it but there's something called coverture which is like a British like common law principle, which is like once a woman gets married, her entire legal identity is subsumed by her husband, right? Yep. Um, and so if you're, yeah, sorry. <laughs> so like you, you you just aren't a legal person when you're married. Um, so if you're writing books and you have an independent spirit and all that, I can see like not wanting to give that up, right? Um, yeah, for sure. You don't want exactly. A coming in. And, That's a good point. Yeah, like he's like, oh, like why aren't you like? 
drying those flowers today. <laughs> She's like, I want to write a book. And he's like, no, you're my wife. <laughs> yeah, why is your watercolor, like, why aren't you painting watercolors? Or why aren't you, like, I don't know, like, darning socks or something? Well, no, not darning socks, because that's what they're made to. But, like, you know, doing needlework yeah. on something. <laughs> exactly. And so, like, one, it's like, if you have, like, a sense of purpose, it's like, okay, you don't want to necessarily lose it. Um, and two... She has written the most compelling male romantic figures in history Yeah, to me, right? At least in the yeah. English language. Yeah. Who is she going to meet that can compare to a Mr. Darcy? You know, she's imagined things that's so a good point. That's a good point. Because honestly, <laughs> like, I want this to be considered like a central theme. Well, not, maybe not a central theme, but something that I think constantly. Men, like real life men, like human beings that are men will embarrass and disgrace mm-hmm. people often. So like, this just yeah. honestly a fact of life. Like, I don't think we need to sort of, you know, pussyfoot around it. So I can imagine Jane Austen sort of being like, that guy sucks, that guy sucks, that guy sucks, exactly. that guy sucks. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so basically, that's Jane Austen. And we also just wanted to, and we've touched upon this, but we wanted to make clear, like in general, a couple um, themes that you'll see in her novels. So, Misan, you want to talk about the first one, which is basically the marriage plot, which exists yeah. in a lot of sort of Regency era, right? Know, love and I think, and honestly, I think it's interesting. So, the marriage plot is like, as you can imagine, it's sort of in the name, but it all it focuses on sort of like courtship rituals at the time, primarily between men and women. Um, as Nana has mm-hmm. mentioned previously, like marriage was sort of the be all and end all for what a woman could accomplish because she her identity first initially was with her father and her family. And mm-hmm. then when she gets married, it's, you know, subsumed by her husband. But frankly, being married was the only way a woman could actually like, for what people expected, gain wealth or get any sort of like support. Um, for anything after they left their father's homes. And so I think for a lot of people... Oh, sorry. I'm going to interrupt real quick. Uh, if you're For most women, if there was like a class of women who were wealthy and inherited money. And you also see in the marriage plot that those women oftentimes don't want to get married. Yeah, because they don't want to lose. They don't want to lose that on their inheritance exactly. or they'll try to like write, you know like have like the marriage contract state specifically that they get to keep the money, like the husband will write, like have to write like a legal waiver or sign a legal waiver or something like that. But frequently marriage was the mm-hmm. way to build wealth or even to build some sort of like, you know, experience um, outside of being the daughter of somebody. And then for men, you know, marriage is like how you had children, right? And for them, if they wanted to gain wealth as well, that's if they were, you know, poor and they're trying to marry heiresses, uh, marrying wealthy was the way to do it. And you have to remember for aristocrats, who, of course, heaven forbid, would never work, marrying an heiress is the way to keep yep. the wealth and gain wealth, especially if, you know, they had older ancestors that had, you know, had sort of gambled away all of the money. So the marriage plot is such a, I think, an essential part of how people are able to understand falling in love or marrying for convenience or for what or for wealth or for whatever dynastic purposes, right? So her a lot of her her novels really focus a lot on that. Um, and it makes sense because marriage is a huge part of society and has been for many many years, uh, mm-hmm. and it certainly was something that people felt was the epitome of what women could accomplish 
at that time in the 19th century. And let's be honest, like marriage continues to be yeah. <laughs> what people, a lot of what people think women can accomplish now. So it's not anything new, like even romantic comedies are sort of like an evolved, or basically an evolved version of the marriage plot because it's, you know, two individuals, men, women, women and women, men and men, falling in love and coming together to form some sort of life partnership. So it makes sense that, you know, Jane Austen's books are centered around that. And they get into the economics of marriage, which I've talked about a little bit as well, but like why marrying is so important. Uh, and she's able to, I think, as only someone whose family was wealthy before and now is, you know, just, you know, holding on to respectability, but doesn't have any money. She's able to write about why, you know, marrying for money is, it, it's not the most romantic thing, but it makes sense and it's practical and is necessary. And she does a good job of, you know, laying that commentary in, through so many of her characters and so many of her books. I think the thing about Jane Austen to keep in mind is she writes romance right? But she never strays away from the economics. Like this, her stories, she knows it wouldn't work if uh, our hero or heroine fell in love with a poor man, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. the only reason why it works is because there is this, like, there's always some sort of economic benefit. And okay, sorry, that's a, a lie. She's like, we've had like persuasion. She, the guy is like initially beneath her and economically and socially. So her yeah. family um, like basically says, don't marry him. Mm -hmm. But when she does marry him, he's like ascended into society. And so she's a very real, she's a realist. Like she understands that fundamentally this woman like needs to have like won a prize, it, like based on the standards of society. Mm -hmm. But like what makes it like sort of revolutionary or a little different is that they also form like an intellectual emotional connection as well. And so she never sort of tries to like, I, at least in my opinion, she never tries to make the case of love over everything. Right. It's just that like, it's even better when love exists. Exactly. You know? So yeah. Yeah. Um, and so just like a couple more things about Jane Austen, um, as you probably have gotten from what we said, like there is, Okay, there are a couple things. So first, it's, I think she is very well known for her just really incisive, almost like acidic, like social critique. Like mm. she builds these worlds with so many characters that are like kind of archetypes of like what people who were reading at the time would understand in society. Like the pompous guy who has just been made a lord like last week, but thinks he's like better than everybody. Mm -hmm. The really sort of, pedantic and pretentious preacher who's like just like sycophantic he's like a sycophant for like all these like rich people like she she and through these different characters um and these observations of her omniscient narrator who is incredibly biting <laughs> she's like poking fun at the society i don't think she ever is kind of like you know calling for revolutionary change no, but she's a, she's all. a satirist so she's like yeah, she's like telling people like, look at like, we are all a little ridiculous, right? Um, and also, I think, because I, I just want to make this point really clear, because I know, like, I remember, I had a dinner with friends who were like, Oh, my God, like, who's one of your favorite writers? And I was like, Jane Austen. And they're like, what? Like, I didn't realize you were so basic. And I almost got <laughs> out on the table and every last part. <laughs> <laughs> the disrespect to Jane Austen. Like, how dare you? I want to 
going to backhand every single one of them because how dare you? Uh, not only is she doing that really smart social critique, she's somehow doing that and it's biting with like the frothiest of tones, right? Like it's still like a fun and still kind of light. And then she's does this intense world building. Like Misan, do you want to talk about the world building a little? Like, Sure. I thought it's, I think it's interesting because like, and Nana and I talked about this, well, I have talked about this before, but it's, it's interesting how like in just like a few sentences, she gives you a real sort of sense of these characters, even if they're not like, you know, even if they're bit characters, right? Like they show up for like mm -hmm. a paragraph or something like that. You, you're left with such a real impression of who they are. And I think it's because even with her like biting, you know, sharp commentary, it never feels like these people are caricatures. They're real people that you can imagine and see, and you can have, you know, understand that archetypes of these people like exist. Like we're not necessarily going to see, you know, we don't know Mrs. Bennett, right? But we, we can see like shades of Mrs. Bennett and people's moms that we know and like her, our aunts totally. or something or like, you know, like relatives, like we can see that, you know, we can see like a pompous, like wealthy dude, like Darcy and like how he might be the fact that he's awkward and not just like pompous and arrogant helps us understand like, okay, this is a real person. So I think with the world building, it feels like she creates a space and a world where it's inhabited by real people in the same way that we mm -hmm. have real people in our lives, right? Like, you know, the person, like the barista, I mean, we don't really see baristas anymore because of the pandemic. Um, if you're seeing a yeah. barista, I'm very jealous, but you probably shouldn't, unless you got the <laughs> vaccine, by the way. Uh, but anyway, but like you see your barista for like, you know, a few minutes, like every day before you're going, like rushing into work. And you sort of build a rapport with them. And that's a person that has like its own, their own real life. And that's separate from mm -hmm. yours because you think you're the star in your life, but like you're able to understand that, oh, that barista, like I get a sense of that barista from how I engage with them. And I feel like that's how Jane Austen writes. Like Lizzie talks to this random person for a few minutes at a ball and yep. they're like, oh, they're super judgy about Lizzie because she's like poor or something like that. Lizzie, Elizabeth Darcy, obviously. Elizabeth Bennett, who then becomes Darcy, obviously. Spoiler alert. Um, but it's like super, like, you know, <laughs> they're like very judgy. Like who does she think she is? And that gives us like that, those few sentences of that interaction gives us a sense of who that person is. It's like, oh, this is a society that's, you know, very stratified mm -hmm. and, you know, people feel strong about people trying to like, you know, improve themselves by, by social class or standing. Um, and I just think she does a very good job of that in a way that many authors do not. And honestly, it's not easy to do, but she makes it seem yep. simple. Yeah. Exactly. I, I agree a hundred percent. And just like another point that I want to make clear off of what Misan was saying is that we're not talking about like 10 people, like in any given book, there are dozens of secondary characters that you'll see for like a minute or two and you can walk away and be like, Oh, you know, this character and remember something very concrete about them. And so I think that's like a huge feat in writing because to do that on top of having the lot love story on top of having the social critique in mm -hmm. one book is like a, it's a feat. So put respect on Jane Austen's name. Okay. Random, Thank you. random people that were at <laughs> Nana's dinner table. And I'm sure that I know put some respect on her name. Okay. She deserves it. <laughs> uh, yeah i wish i had like a dueling glove at that time it just could be like mm, we're going outside at dawn because <laughs> it's 
<laughs> what would you duel with Nana? You cannot like. Can you shoot a gun? Can you shoot a gun? <laughs> I can't. We would. We'd have to figure out something else. But I, something. I was about to fight people. <laughs> <laughs> or we could do like a yoga off. You know, like uh, <laughs> like who has, the, who has the best? Like I don't know. I would. I guess my best one is Savasana. <laughs> Um, but okay. So we talked your year off about Jane Austen and I think, well, like, let's get into Pride and Prejudice, this very specific work. And what we're going to do today is like, we've talked about like, okay, Jane Austen talks about the economics of love and we've kind of compared it to like how we think love is now. We've talked about all these like robust characters that, you know, like Mrs. Bennett, the mother, we can see her in moms and aunties. And this all kind of led us to, you know, we've like noticed these elements of Jane Austen and we wondered like, why is her work so enduring, particularly Pride and Prejudice, right? Like why have there been a million adaptations and retellings and like, why, like what, I mean, Pride and Prejudice was like written originally, I think in this like 1790 something as, um, what you might call it. It was called First Impressions. And then I think it like was like published in 1813. Yeah. So that book has been around for more than 200 years and you still got like bitches like me who are like millennials, first generation American (laughs) black women who are swooning over this, right? I know. It's quite a fee, fee, honestly. It is, right? So why is it so enduring? And I think the biggest like we're going to explore that today um you know but i think first what's really important is to know like why it's it matters so much to us like what was our first encounter with um pride and prejudice so the first section we call at first sight which is talk about our first like how how we first fell in love with the source material so like Misan, tell me tell me so what it's your so first funny of so it's so funny i think i read pride and Pre- i was trying to remember this in preparation for this podcast because i could not remember a time that i did not know of pride and prejudice and i hadn't read it which is really interesting for it to feel so sort of embedded into my like sort of conception of romance novels and like really good writing it's, it's my favorite book um and has been for years mm. I think the first time I read it, I was probably in middle school, I think. Um, I'm not sure, like, you know, but like, that's what, that feels right to me. And I think yeah. it just was so, um, I just, I just remember the first sentence because, um, I almost, I almost started this episode, this podcast episode, Romscob, but just saying the first sentence in a British accent, you know, that do it, it's do it. no, I'm not doing do it. it because one of my best friends slash my like actual sister, like, lives in the UK and is going to listen to this episode and then mock me no. incessantly, especially no, with her please. husband who has the actual British accent. So I'm not doing it, but okay. I will say, I will say the line. I will say the line okay. and, tr- and try to do the British accent later, I suppose. But it's, okay. I just remember the line gripping me when I read it. Cause it felt just, I don't know why it just felt so sharp and like, it just got right into it. Right. It, what is it? It's the truth universally acknowledged that, uh, 
single man in possession of a good fortune is in want of a wife or something like that, right? Must be uh, a single man in possession of a fortune must be in want of a wife. Must, yeah, must, must be in, yeah. must be in want of a wife. And so like, oh my gosh, I really, I should have prepped my British accent for this. Uh, but I just remember when I read the line, I remember like that was the, it's the first line of the book. And I just remember being like, what? This is, is what? This is interesting. I don't remember. I just remember mm -hmm. it hitting me being like, she really gets right into it. Okay. Um, <laughs> and like, she like, it's, I think what's so great with Pride and Prejudice is just how, even with all sort of the flowery language from like, you know, the 1790 or whatever to when it was published as a book finally 1813 is it just feels so direct like and clear mm -hmm. you know it's very like clear sharp writing and that was what gripped me about it especially when you like you read other things like you know you read like you know Jane Eyre and you know like the Bronte sisters and all that sort of stuff and they're cool and they're good but they they never were able to get me so sort of you know enamored and feel like gripped by writing in the same way that Pride and Prejudice did. And it was from that very first sentence that it really made me just get excited about it. And it's, and I go back to that book, you know, every few years to see if it still feels the same and it never changes. Like that feeling of like, she really gets it. And I'm so excited to read what she's saying because it feels like she has something really important to say and I'm going to enjoy it. And it's always been the same each time. Aww. Well, um, okay. I guess I'll talk about my first impression, but I'm ching of Pride <laughs> and Prejudice. And, uh, okay. You're going to have to bear with me because I have to go back a little, um, to my parents. I was conceived. No, I'm kidding. I, I, like, seriously, like, <laughs> in the back, <laughs> way, way back in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it does stem from my parents. So just like a little background. Um, my parents are both Ghanaian and um, they grew up, you know, they're eight years apart. Um, and my dad grew up like right sort of at the tail end of colonial period. And then like, um, then kind of coming into the post-colonial period. And my mom was mostly growing up in the direct post-colonial period. Um, and so they both went to this uh, school in Ghana called Achimota, which is like a really renowned school. And it was heavily sort of influenced by like the British educational system. So despite the fact that my parents were in school eight years apart, because of just the way the school was an institution and be because of like, you know, colonialism, how like much the British kind of had influenced their um, curriculum, especially their English curriculum, they ended up reading the same books. Mm. And so my parents, my entire childhood would quote Pride and Prejudice. You know, no like, way. Yeah, That's yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And like, I mean, they, you know, it's, it was like really remarkable, I think, about it because they would just get really playful and they would like say a line of, from Pride and Prejudice, like, oh, to him, I've been kinder to them, to, to myself. Or they would say that first line. And for years, I was just like, what is this book that they're both obsessed with? Like, why are they <laughs> always talking about this? And so in middle school, uh, I decided to like, like, it's very similar to you. I decided to try to read it. Um, and I will confess that I wasn't, didn't have the experience where I was like gripped by the first line. I had the experience where I was like, this is such a hard book to read and mm -hmm. I just can't do it. So I mm -hmm. put it away and, and I'd gotten it from the library. So I guess not too long after that, I decided to give it another try and just like push through it. 
And I think it just takes a while to get used to the language because it is yeah. very dense. It's very yeah, sort it's of yeah, it's like, yeah. yeah, it's like 19th century or whatever um, language. Uh, and so once I finally did, I loved it. Like I loved the Darcy. I loved Liz- Lizzie or Elizabeth Bennet. I loved the characters. I loved the world that she created. I just, I understood it, right? I understood like why it had endured so much with my parents. And mm-hmm. it was like kind of fun to be part of something, like love something that they loved too, because it just didn't happen a lot, especially when I was 11. Um, yeah. And then I was like hooked, like I read, I've read Pride and Prejudice at least eight times, like that book alone. I've read mm. like every novel that Jane Austen has ever written. I like bought my mom like a collection of every Jane Austen, like not just her novels, but her short stories that we have sitting in our like living room. I like, I've read through it. She has, it's like really kind of big in our family, Jane Austen. Um, wow. And then on top of, yeah. <laughs> So that's why I told you I have the clackety clack heels because this is business today for me. Working Um, girl. (laughs) Yeah, I care about Jane. And so, yeah, like I, and I've seen, and I I think this is what we have in common. I've seen and read like just so many adaptations of Jane Austen, but particularly Pride and Prejudice, which I would venture to say is probably like the most adapted of all her works Mm. Um, because not only do people do like straight adaptations, like where they just like, you know, it's the novel, but like in movie form, but there's so many reformulations and retellings of it where people adapt it to their society and their, you know, current times. And so, yeah, that's like me and Pride and Prejudice. Like we, you know, it's my favorite book. It's like my gooey center. It's my heart and I love it. So yeah, that's it. Aw. Well, Pride and, as you can see, Nana and I both feel very strongly about Pride and Prejudice. I'm sure some of the ROM squad might not have read and they're like, these girls are like really into this. But I just want you to know that we barely scratched the surface. We have so much more to talk about. <laughs> this is whole time. I know, this is a long one. <laughs> this is going to be a long one. Um, and like we mentioned before, there's like a million adaptations and there's a reason for that just because it feels um, universal and we're tr- attempting to like, you know, uncover, like Nana said, why it's so universal, why these themes seem to like, you know, continue to recur in novels and in movies and in TV shows. Because it really is like, you know, yeah, there's Emma and there's Sense and Sensibility, but people do not feel the same way about Emma or Sense and Sensibility Mm -hmm. the way they feel about Pride and Prejudice. They just don't. Like you have a few remakes, but it's not like this is her iconic work. Um, And so it would be good for us to hopefully by the end of this episode, Nan and I will have come to some sort of agreement and hopefully you guys will be convinced by our arguments and this general thesis about why we think it's so universal and enduring. Um, but before we do that, I should tell you guys about the plot. And I'm going to yep. try to keep it short, but bear with me. <laughs> uh, so we're dealing with uh, 19th century England and we have Mr. and Mrs. Bennett who have five daughters. Uh, three daughters and names you really need to care about are Elizabeth, who's like, you know, the second youngest and our protagonist, mostly, uh, Jane and Lydia. The other two, they're there, but they're not as important. Anyway, second so oldest. Mr. Yeah. The second, yeah, yeah. Elizabeth's the second oldest. And she, like, Jane is beautiful and good and kind. And Elizabeth is like witty and charming, but also like super judgy. Uh, mm-hmm. So we meet the Bennett family at a bit of a crisis. They have five daughters. 
Mr. Bennett owns an estate, Longbourn, in which all of them live that's entailed. So his daughters cannot inherit this estate. So once he dies, they have to go off and find their own lives. And a distant cousin, uh, this obsequious, super, like, you know, a little gross clergyman yeah. named uh, Mr. Nibbling. Collins is going, is, yeah, exactly, nibbling, <laughs> is going to come and take over. Uh, and so we meet the Bennett family trying to figure out what they're going to do. Mrs. Bennett is trying to make sure that all of these daughters of hers get married and that she's able to care for them because she doesn't want them to live in poverty after Mr. Bennett dies. You want to take it from there, Nana? Yeah, sure. So basically, um, yeah, so there are three daughters. Mrs. Bennett is like running around like a crazy person wanting to make sure that her daughters are married um, because they're going to lose their estate because they don't have male heirs. And then she gets uh, like news in the neighborhood that a very wealthy gentleman named Bingley is moving into like a house. He's like rented a house nearby. Um, important thing about Bingley he, to know, he's very sweet. He's a lovely person. And they make it very clear that she, he earns 5,000 pounds a year. So Woo, the, big money. Mm -hmm. by the standards of those days, he was like a wealthy man. So she immediately wants him for one of her daughters. She pushes her husband to like try to like get an intro because it had has to be the man of the house who does it. Eventually he does, you know, through a bunch of things happening, Mr. Bingley meets her daughters and falls in love with Jane. So like Jane and Bingley are like two beautiful, sweet people being sweet to each other. Um, Mr. Bingley has a best friend, Mr. Darcy, who, whew, Mr. Darcy. And he <laughs> rolls up. He rolls up to a ball with Mr. Bingley and at first everybody's like, oh yes, he's like exciting because he's tall and he's dark and he's handsome and he earns 10,000 pounds a year. So he's like blows Bingley out of the water. But and sorry, just to interrupt Nana, just mm -hmm. so you guys know, I checked the Wikipedia entry, 10,000 pounds a year and 2019 money is like 660,000 mm. pounds a year. So it's a lot of freaking money. Yeah. Uh, Saweetie would maybe call him an eight figure... <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that is perfect just the right time i will take one if you guys know anyone rom squad like let me know <laughs> so there's a lot that happens in the book so i'll just try to keep it brief but basically darcy is rolls up everybody wants him for their daughters but he's like proves himself to be really haughty and proud and snooty and then they all kind of fall out of love with him and are like forget him he and Lizzie meet each other. He basically, Lizzie overhears him saying that, oh, she's like tolerable enough, you know, but not pretty enough to tempt me, which is basically like, she's cute, but not, you know, not my type. All right. Like so complete she, jamming with faint praise. Um, like, mm -hmm. wow. Very not nice. Yeah. So she immediately forms a dislike for him. I, there's so much stuff happens, but the important things to remember are Darcy, Elizabeth, Bingley, Jane. Even though Elizabeth like continues to judge and hate Darcy, he progressively through the book is falling in love with her. And that mm -hmm. our omniscient narrative makes that clear. And it's clear that yeah. he loves her, you know, for her intellect. And, you know, they have that kind of like we're the two smartest people in the room thing going on. And he loves that. Uh, and so another character that comes through is Mr. Collins, who's the guy who's supposed to basically inherit the estate. He comes to visit to basically like look over the things he's going to get once the dad dies, which is hella tacky. Um, yeah. But 
Mrs. Binkley, or sorry, Mrs. Bennett is excited because this is an opportunity to try to get one of her daughters to get married off to him. But this is the point where I really want to make uh, a point that we both talked about, um, Go for it. which is justice for Mrs. Bennett. Yes. <laughs> oh is, my God, um, please. Let's talk about it. Let's talk yeah, about this it. Is, this is a side note, but a very important side note. The novel makes Mrs. Bennett out to be like, her husband can't really stand her. She's like kind of the silly woman. She's so obsessed with her daughters getting married. And she's kind of the subject of ridicule. Like, it's clear that the narrator is kind of poking fun at her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember I took a class in college um, with this professor, Ann Chen, I think her name was, who like kind of changed the way I saw the novel, which she was like, you know, everybody is kind of like Mrs. Bennett is kind of the joke of the book, but you have to understand, like she is facing a very real crisis. Like she, their family doesn't have money and you, the way you sort of rely on your like future and your well being of your daughters would be to have a son. And she did it at the home that they live in is going to be entailed away. So like she needs to get, and it's, it's not even like she has two daughters. She has to figure out how to get five daughters married and doing fairly well in a very short period of time. And so the fact that she is scheming like this, like she's kind of an OG, like, or she's like, she's a G because like the way she Honestly. got, like, you know, yeah, <laughs> she, she got like Jane in proximity to Bingley. Her husband wasn't helping, you know, he wasn't really particularly concerned with it. She, you know, so like, it's another way to see the novel, which is that like, sometimes we like look at moms like, Ugh. but moms are the ones who are worried about everyone. They're the ones who are multitasking. They're the ones who are getting things done while the dad is just like sitting in his study being like, you're so silly. So that's my, like, Oh, exactly. And Mr. I think what I, what I never really like cared for was how Mr. Bennett seemed to be clearly like um, disdainful of her to his children. Mm-hmm. I find that like, I think that's yeah. one of the worst things a father can do. Um, like sort of like disdainful of your like life partner of your wife to your children and you think it's fun to invite disrespect and she didn't deserve it yeah yes. she might be like a little bit annoying but what was he doing clearly not anything and he didn't even have an inheritance he was like useless he's like oh I'm so smart where does smart get you smart putting food on the table clearly not please justice for Mrs. Bennett yeah. honestly and so she's yeah. like in a frenzy trying to get her daughters married so you know Collins isn't great but you know he'll do right so yeah. he eventually proposes to Lizzie Lizzie's like nah you suck and Mrs. Bennett is like oh damn you Lizzie but it doesn't matter because she has the support of her dad Mr. Mm-hmm. Collins is like in his feelings about it because he thinks that like he's a good catch he like goes like and you know goes off and Lizzie's friend Charlotte uh Lucas ends up marrying him because they talk a little she you know she sees an opportunity and like a bad bitch she takes it and so she ends up getting <laughs> <to> Mr. Collins <laughs> and just a, just a um, note here it's funny because Charlotte is like considered at that point she's 27 years old like horror horrors she's like a spinster mm-hmm. and she's like on the shelf and no one will ever marry her because she's too old so she has to take what she can get and like Paris the thought like I don't know what they would think of me and Nana because they would be up <laughs> yeah i mean i also don't think they'd love the fact that we're black from the well i mean nah, bygone <laughs> bygone <laughs> uh, so you know i'm sorry i'm trying to power through this so 
Lizzie is kind of judging her friend because like, ill. like, why would you take that guy? He He's awful. But her friend is saying, listen, you have better prospects than me. I'm not as pretty. I'm much older. I'm going to take what I can get. There's like a little bit of a rift. But then Charlotte and like as a really nice gesture invites Lizzie to their home to like hang out because people didn't work. So they just be like, come stay at my like house for like three months. And so like Lizzie does that. Um, and Mr. Collins is, you know, his paid, he's a, as we said, like a vicar, like kind of a pastor figure. And his patron is Lady Catherine de Burr, who's a really rich titled arist- aristocratic lady. Turns out she's Darcy's auntie. So we have to get our two like main lover characters together. Darcy. Exactly. Su- su- yeah. So Darcy comes to visit his auntie, pleasantly surprised. He sees Lizzie there. Um, As this is happening, you could tell it's building up that he's like falling more and more in love with her. And she's starting to hate him more and more because in the meantime, she has learned from this guy who's like an acquaintance, who's like this dashing army guy, Mr. Wickham. And he basically... Uh, has told her that like, oh, I know Darcy from back in the day and he did me real dirty. And so that's like one point against uh, Darcy. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Mm -hmm. as time progresses and she's hanging out at um, Mr. Collins' house and Darcy's like awkwardly wooing her, but she's like being like, oh, that guy's weird. Leave me alone. So that's happening. And his travel companion, his cousin, is basically like Mr. Bingley, like his friend, Mr. Darcy did him a real solid by like making sure that he didn't end up with this, like basically like, I don't know, I guess whatever the equivalent of a pigeon is back then. (laughs) This little bird, this little bird. (laughs) Sorry. I'm not even properly laughing. I'm like gasping for air because you brought in pigeons to England. So Darcy, so she she puts two to get together and realizes that he's talking about her sister. So now she's also learned that Darcy basically interfered and like made it so that her sister wouldn't meet uh wouldn't get together with Bingley. Sorry, we actually forgot to say this part, which is that even though Bingley and Jane were getting really close, like out of nowhere, he and his sisters just poof disappeared. And seriously like and abruptly, like, yeah. like, and then no one knows why they just were like, Oh, yeah, they went to London, like, without like, mm-hmm. so much as a buyer leave. Yeah, very exactly. So he basically ghosted her. And then, uh, uh, like, she's devastated Jane. And then Elizabeth finds out that Darcy was responsible for that ghosting, because he told his friend, like, hey, listen, like, no, she's like, not pump your brakes. I'm not sure if this is Yeah. Basically, he was singing, like Nana said, he was singing, like, no pigeons in response, like, just like people saying. I don't want no pigeons. I don't want no pigeons response to I don't want no scrubs, which was, like, as everybody remembers, was, like, such a terrible, terrible response to no scrubs. The iconic song about not having scrubs in your life. Yeah. (laughs) So Darcy is, like, okay, I can't resist Elizabeth anymore. He proposes to her. Elizabeth, knowing these things that how Darcy like wronged these people that she cares about, says, no, absolutely not. And by the way, when you propose, you said like that my family was so beneath you and this was like you were essentially slumming it and you're doing everything against your better judgment just to be with me. That's really insulting. Ill, no. And so Mm -hmm. Darcy's like, what? And um, basically he responds with a letter because everybody it's like so uh, like 
through letters, epistolary or whatever, like everybody's writing letters. And so he finds her, sends her a letter and is like, okay, response to your two claims. One, Wickham, he's a liar. I never did anything like that to him. A big, fat, fake, dirty liar. Everything he said is not true. Yeah. So he's saying that I did him wrong, but in fact, he tried to run away with my sister so that he could like ruin our family's name and extort money from me to prevent anything bad happening to her or my family's name. Because at the time, like a woman like running off with a man, you know, the implication is she's having premarital or extramarital sex. That's like disastrous. And so, like sex uh, before you're married. The horror, like who would do such a thing? Yeah. So Darcy had rescued his sister from that, but like basically hated Wickham. So he tells Elizabeth and that's like really sensitive information. So he tells her that and she's like, oh, I misjudged that. And then with response to his uh, Jane, he was like, "Eh, I don't regret that. She's, you know, like I was better to um, Wickham. Like, I'm sorry. Well, I, I was better to that, bing, like, yeah, Bingley than I am Bingley. to myself, right? Was, Something like that, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so he's just basically like, I mean, if I kind of obfuscated or lied or anything, I'm sorry about that. But the fundamentals separating them, like, no, that was a smart thing to do and a good thing for my friend. So Huff, she's like so upset, does, you know, but now she's thinking about Darcy because she's like, this like real like hot, like rich guy proposed to me, huh? But she still hates him. Lots of random things happen, but basically she ends up traveling to the Northern England with her relatives and Mm -hmm. she ends up going to, uh, you know, and just to understand people don't work. So they're just always going from one location to another and then spending a lot of time at the second location. Like Galavan, just like, like in leisure, like, oh, what will I do today? I guess I'll go for a walk because how else will I entertain myself? I don't know. (laughs) So it's my dream life, basically. Um, and so she goes to Pemberley, which is uh, Darcy's estate. She sees like all his big, beautiful grounds. She's like, oh my gosh, like I was good. I gave up all of this. Wow. And then she talks to his servants and they're like, he is such a, like a man. She's amazing. He's such a good landlord. And then when she, you know, Wickham comes up, they're like, oh, he's trash. So she's just realizing that like, oh, maybe I like have misinterpreted everything. Then surprise, surprise, Darcy appears. He's like even nicer than he was before because he's taken what she said to heart. And now he's trying not to be so snooty. He's being friendly. He's inviting her family, her relatives out to things. And everybody knows this guy is in love with her. They meet up again. It's clear that he's going to propose, but she gets a letter from her family learning that Lydia, her youngest sister has run off with Wickham more, you know, these concerns about defilement and being like a ruined woman that comes up again. And so it's like another crisis for her family who already has a million crises. It turns out they're on the Benister, like, sorry, just on the side, the Benister (laughs) a mess. And it's really, I know we already said we talked about justice for Mrs. Bennett, but Mrs. Bennett is trying while Mr. Bennett is like, again, I just want to reiterate useless. (laughs) yeah and so Lydia is eventually saved because Darcy pays off Wickham to marry her and make an honest woman of her Um, Lizzie finds out about that Darcy also intervenes and like makes sure that Wickham or sorry that Bingley um, marries Jane and so Lizzie's Mm -hmm. like oh you're so nice like I kind of hope he's like still into me and surprise he is he proposes again 
Mm-hmm. And he says, listen, I'm not going to, you know, you know how I feel. This is going to be the last time I do this because I don't want to bother you. Um, but if you change your mind and if you're into it, I'd like to marry you. She says, yes, the heavens open. We all breathe a collective sigh of relief. So that's Pride and Prejudice. You know, so it, we end up, Lydia is married to Wickham. And yes, it's like a little shady, but she's married. Um, Jane is married to Bingley, who makes 5000 a year. Lizzie's married to Darcy, who makes 10000 a year. And Mrs. Bennett is sitting back drinking a margarita with her sunglasses on, being like... But she deserves. Like, the- her tactics <laughs> might have been, you know, a little over, out of, you know, not necessarily the best, but she made them work. And even, and the most annoying daughter, the one that she thought would be the hardest to marry off is the one that marries the wealthiest man. I think that's actually hilarious. There are just a couple things that you may have gleaned from the plot, but like I want to make explicit, um, it, which is like, and I also think these are the elements that make it adaptable. The first is just the fundamental characteristics of the two protagonists, Lizzie and mm-hmm. Darcy. Mm-hmm. So Lizzie and any adaptation you'll see, she is incredibly smart. The thing with Lizzie is that she is, her wit is acerbic for sure. Much like mm-hmm. what I imagine Jane Austen is. Um, like I always, I always feel like Jane Austen is like Lizzie for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, she is charming. So, and she's very judgmental and she thinks she knows better than anyone else. But I think that's really undercut by the fact that she like is charming. Um, mm-hmm. I also think it's, I feel like for women to read the book, it's sort of like, we all feel like we're a little bit like Lizzie for whatever totally. reason. Like we're like, Oh, we're like super smart and like all that sort of, and like, Oh, I, I can, I can be sort of like Lizzie a little bit. I think is what helps too. Yeah. I think it's like, so she's really smart. She's really opinionated. She reads a lot. You get the sense that she's like much more into intellectual pursuits than a lot of the women around her. Yeah. And that's like what, what is like attractive um, to Darcy. And so I think that if you're the type of woman who's like reading Jane Austen, especially if you're younger, you are like really bookish, right? And mm-hmm. I think a lot of us fancied ourselves the same way, you know? And so to have it presented in such like an enticing, charming way, and that like your wit is actually an asset, and it's like the thing that attracts the dream man, I think is so compelling to women all over the world at any given time. Um, I, Darcy, um, He is, and they make it very clear, he is tall, dark, and handsome. You know, Mm -hmm. he is rich with his 10,000 pounds a year. He is aloof. And I think the aloofness is like actually what makes him attractive because, you know, you always want the guy who's not trying to be friends with everybody because when he's really trying to get close to you, you know, it's because he thinks you're special, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's what we see at Darcy. (laughs) Like he's, doesn't care what people think about him and then but then he's like bending over backwards to like get elizabeth to like think of him as a decent man and he's rough around the edges he's flawed but not fundamentally so yes yes i I think what's i think the endearing part is the awkwardness like Mm -hmm. there's something about like the person that seems to have like everything like he's wealthy he's tall because i gotta say tall it's not something you, you would think tall would be abundant. It's not as abundant as you think it might be. No. Anyway, so he's tall, he's, he's wealthy, and he's handsome. Um, and so that seems to be like the archetype of the perfect man, right? So you, you never think, you think that person has everything. So you never think there's anything that needs to be changed or adjusted. 
But like when you see that Lizzie's able to help him be a better person in the sense of being able to be less socially awkward and able to like care more about people and be sort of less self-focused, there's something endearing about that. Like, oh, even the person that has everything needs a woman to help make him better. Yeah. And she is that woman. This is beautiful. So there's something very um, enticing about that. Mm-hmm. I think these qualities, like in every, every culture over time, I think those are just things that a lot of people really sort of are drawn to. And so the second thing that I think is really enduring are like the themes of marriage and romantic pairing. Um like, do you want to talk about that just a little, Nissan? Well, so I think what's interesting about it is like, I, I mean, we've already talked about this, just like sort of the idea of um, Lizzie and Darcy as a couple and why they seem to balance each other on why people are drawn to it. But this goes back to, I think, the marriage plot idea, right? Like where every sort of, a lot of novels are centered around and a lot of like pieces of like great pop culture, like rom-coms that we care about are centered around like, two people falling in love or like courting each other in whatever way. And so having it sort of laid out so bare and directly, and it's like, you see different versions of it, right? Like Lizzie and um, Darcy ultimately ask, are like the bantering sparring couple. Um, and they're falling in love in their own way. It's like Bingley and Jane are a bit more of like the soft, like good natured, like cheer. I almost sort of think of Bingley as like this, like super like cheerful, like golden retriever. It's like really, really yeah, nice and kind. <laughs> and Jane is just like this like very kind, gracious, like beautiful person that's quiet. But they fit each other. Like, so that's another type of romantic couple. Um, and then it's a bit more mercenary, right? With like Charlotte and Collins. She knows what she's doing. Like she's going in, like, you know, her eyes are clear and open. Like she wants to get married and be settled. And she's able to do that with someone that actually is going to have an estate. So that's like another form of marriage. Lydia gets her man because, you know, he's forced into, you know, marrying her. But that's another type. So it just, it shows sort of like the different parts and concepts and conceptions of like marriage and how, and what it can look like and how people are like paired romantically. And you're able to see different love stories and not love stories, but marriages. And I think it's interesting because you sort of see that in life in general. So it just feels like a very like real, like living, breathing thing you're able to encounter in this novel. Yeah. And then the last thing I'll say about marriage and romantic pairing is that it's just like marriage is the way that societies have organized themselves. Like every society I can think yeah. of. And of course, if you're an anthropologist, come to me and tell me if I'm wrong. But like <laughs> most societies organize themselves around marriage and it's like marriage rights are like central to most societies. Right. And so we all kind of care about this like organizing this family unit Mm -hmm. um and because of that i think a lot of cultures have like a preoccupation with marriage and getting people married and so the fact that like this fixation and this like anxiety around marriage is so central to this novel i think also resonates with like a lot of cultures and a lot of like and over time because like yes marriages look different as like different societies progress and time goes on but like we still find ourselves caring about it yeah yeah like it doesn't matter like as much as people want to be like you know free yourself from the shackles of thinking marriage is important but marriage is still such a huge part of life yeah um whether or not you like actively go into it or if you have something that looks like a marriage it's like a life partnership it's still sort of like partnering together for life to do something or be with someone and people people love that people love love 
and being together. So it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And not just loving love, but like, like forming family. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like that's like a big thing. Yeah, that's such a good um, point. Um, yeah. So the next theme that I think is just universal again and, you know, timely, or I guess like, I don't know what the word is, but it's universal and it could last, it's enduring. That's the word. Um, is social status and hierarchy. You know, I think obviously Pride and Prejudice, we're dealing with the people who are like the upper part of society. Like I would imagine them sort of upper middle class to one percenters. Um, but I think that the stratification and, and it's almost like when you're dealing with people who are that well off, the stratification is like based on much more like minute and subtle things. And so it like, it gives a lot of like, um, material to mine, right? Like, okay, yeah. like mining the rules of any given society. And I think that that resonates mm. with a lot of societies, particularly like, you know, just like, especially like any sort of subgroup, right? Like, um, I'm trying to think of like an example, but like, um, even if you were like doing something about like high school, right, you could do a Pride and Prejudice, right? Because there's like, yeah, because it's like the popular kid with the nerds and like whatever. Yeah. Like it feels like it's 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 you're right. It's the social status and like hierarchy. It doesn't necessarily have to be about class, but oftentimes exactly. it is. Uh, like the British, like the British just have a very sort of like extreme version with class and like you know you are born into a particular class and then never the twain shall meet ever again. So like, if you're like, if someone is born landed gentry, like how dare they try to go above that? And it's just very much embedded in American society. It feels, or I guess the various versions of American society is that there can be honestly, because America is mm -hmm. a big place. It feels less rigid. At least the societies that Nana and I are, um, are part of and are aware of, but there are definitely other, you know, subgroups that it might be like a bit clearer like where people are going to go and not go like why really really wealthy people marry other really wealthy people and some and somehow they manage to have been you know a part of like a debutante ball that people still do <laughs> apparently yeah. in the 21st century mm -hmm. uh and why that because people being able to classify each other and like where they belong regardless of the fact that you're in a society where like class seems less of a signifier it still matters to a lot of people exactly. and so that's why it's something that people can read and see, oh, I totally get that and apply that to their own like personal experiences. Exactly. And I actually find in, um, that, you know, I, I think a lot of the themes around marriage, like a preoccupation around marriage, the economic sort of propositions that come with marriage and the social status and hierarchy are super present in parts of the global South, you know, like mm, you and I yeah. coming from like African families, I think we can definitely see how that would play out and sort of like, mm -hmm. with like a pride and prejudice, like Africa, right? Like West Africa. Yeah. Definitely. Ghanaian, yeah. I could see it. I mean, I don't know about Nigeria. And definitely Nigeria. I could yeah. see it for sure. For sure. For sure. And then, um, and we'll talk about this a little as we talk about adaptations. Um, but there are so many adaptations of Pride and Prejudice that take place in South Asian societies, you know, and so, mm -hmm. you know, and those will deal with class and colorism or like the people who are wealthy enough to have good schooled abroad. And, you know, I think as long as you have a society that has very specific rules around hierarchy and status and how people relate to each other, this novel can sort of be overlaid on top of that. Um and so, yeah, it, I think that's a big part of what makes it universal. 
So I think the last real thing that like, I don't know, like, so I think generally we've probably given you a sense of, you know, Pride and Prejudice has these themes, which are universal. Um, We have two characters that I think just are so like compelling to people across generations, across times, across cultures. And I, we wanted to kind of give you a flavor of just the extent to which this has been adapted. And I think we are the two people to do it because we have consumed so many of the adaptations. So many different versions. <laughs> so many different versions. Uh, so there are like two separate categories, I would say. there, And I mentioned this on, earlier, but there's like straight pride and prejudice where you're going to just do a retelling as Jane Austen did. It's going to take place in the Regency era straightforward then there's like the Mm -hmm. retellings um where it's like we're gonna adapt it to a different culture a different you know yeah society context like things change like you know we'll add like we'll change a little bit of like certain details or whatever but it's still at its core it's the story of pride and prejudice exactly and so the straight pride and prejudice you know I, I'm, I can't even go through every single one because I feel like every decade the BBC did one. Uh, but like a few, <laughs> like a few, like ones that kind of stuck stick out to me is there was one that was done in 1940, Old Hollywood, and Greg Garson, who I don't expect anybody to know who she is, but she was like a big star back then, is Elizabeth, and she's like 40, so it's a, it's crazy seeing her play Elizabeth. <laughs> I've and never then, seen it. I've never seen it. That's it's, so interesting. It's not great. And, and uh, there's nothing really remarkable about it because it's old Hollywood, which means it's really fluffy. They take out a lot of the meat. It's a short adaptation. I, I like I like classic movies, but I can also say that like that this was just made to be like a crowd pleaser. So it's it's not there's not a lot of substance. The one thing that I think is just um, notable about it is Lawrence Olivier played Darcy. And he, so for a while, a very long time, he was sort of the definitive Darcy. Like when people thought of Darcy, they thought of Lawrence Olivier. He like, he, you know, he's the one who like sort of is evoked when you say Darcy. Um, And he played Darcy very haughty and very arrogant. And so he, like, interestingly, he also played Heathcliff and like an adaptation of um, mm, what should I call it, Weathering Heights. And so I feel like I yeah. see a lot of similarities between his performance there. And so that Darcy is like kind of a dick, <laughs> you know. So that's like, yeah. I mean, Darcy Dar- in general is a dick, to be fair. <laughs> but there are different shades of him depending on who's playing him, where they like play up different aspects, exactly. Um, which is exactly. So bunch of BBC ones, and I'm sure other ones were made. I, I can't even get into them. But, and then 1995, which is like, boo, 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 boo. I'm making air horns. Air horns. This is the straight ad- adaptation. Um, this is 1995 BBC. It was like five or six parts. Um, I'm trying, it's, it's one of the two. It's very long, like five or six hours. And I think it's one of the most faithful adaptations. Like they keep a lot of Jane Austen's dialogue. The you know it's very Regency, um, and they keep almost all, obviously not all, but most of the story elements and the various A, B, C, D, E plot lines. And mm. Jennifer Eel plays Lizzie, and I think she plays her like really kind of like sprightly and like playfully and very witty. And so I love she's a great Lizzie. And Colin Firth, 
long. He plays Darcy. <laughs> and the way he plays Darcy. Not I Nana having a moment over Colin for <laughs> Darcy from 1995. Please like, relax. I, I wish you could see me because I'm like in my chair. I'm like rolling my eyes back in my head. Like, <laughs> oh my God. He's, I mean, he will always be the Darcy to me. Um, so he plays Darcy softer i think he has like a haughtiness but he is very he makes the awkwardness of darcy a lot plainer like a lot more clear mm-hmm. and there are these moments when he looks at elizabeth so adoringly like it's just like it makes your heart melt and so and then he's got the height on him and he's cute and he's got it's just like everything is happening um so i would say that's a very good um yeah, that's a very, very good adaptation. And a lot of people know that. I think it's like one of the most popular things ever watched in the UK. It, yeah, it, it's bananas. So can I confess something? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. I'm going to confess something. And Rom Squad, you're just going to have to forgive me. I have never seen the 1995 Pride and Prejudice BBC miniseries like adaptation. Ooh. I like people always talk about it. Like people are always like, much like Nana is like, having like an amazing moment telling you about it right now and i have never seen it so don't kick me out of rom i mean you can't kick me out because i'm one of the og founders but like just confessing that for all of you to hear i'm sorry um i'm not angry but i am deep is that like my mom? I'm not mad. I'm just like you gotta watch like this is the Pride of Prejudice. I mean, like, just to give you a sense, like, it, it's almost like the badge of people, like, for the people who, like, are PNP. And we call it PNP, yes. PNP fans. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know we called it PNP. <laughs> yeah. You don't know because you didn't watch this mini. <laughs> and so, like, I mean, I have a memory of my roommate and I. Um, who we both, when we found out we were obsessed with Pride and Prejudice and the miniseries, I bought it for our our uh, dorm. And we were like flying back from the Dominican Republic, like hungover from like spring break and like cuddled together watching Pride and Prejudice. And a flight attendant like stops and she's like, are you watching the 99, 1995 Pride and Prejudice, girl? Like, <laughs> like people. Are you serious? Like, yeah. come on. What are the odds of that, honestly? No, I'm serious. <laughs> like, and I remember when I was, I lived in Ethiopia, the bunch of expats and like, you know, I was like in a phase where I was getting to know people and was friends with people. And someone came over to my house and she's like, wait, is that the 1995 BBC Pride and Prejudice box set? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. I like feel... All right, you know what? I'm. This is what I'm going to promise you guys. I'm going to promise you, Nana and Rom Squad. And I, if I could pinky swear Nana, I would. I will watch the 1995 BBC miniseries adaptation. How about that? I will watch it, and then at a later date, I will come back on the podcast and talk about my like feelings about it. And if I like agree that it is the ultimate, I promise. Okay, I apologize. I didn't. It's so early for me to have offended the Rom Squad of three that we have, but here we are. Uh, okay, I'm just gonna say a couple more things about it, and then we could like br- briefly run over other adaptations. This is the like this is what inspired Helen Fielding to write Bridget Jones' Diary, which is not only an amazing mm. book, 
adapted into an amazing movie is a modern retelling of Pride and Prejudice. So it is like the gift that keeps on giving the 1995 BBC Pride and Prejudice. And there's this famous scene where Darcy is like so hot. He's like coming back to Pemberley, his estate. And he like, it's like, oh, it's uh, like I need a little refresher. So he jumps into a lagoon and he emerges from that lagoon and he's wearing this like white, you know, like one of these like kind of bowed brimmel like dress shirts from that time period. And it's sopping wet and his hair's wet. And it's like you could see the outline of his musculature. And he's like emerging from the lagoon and Lizzie sees him and she's like, damn, like you could see it in her eyes. <laughs> and it's like, what? <laughs> So at the very least, you've got to watch it because that is that scene is iconic, iconic. You got it. It's it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh Lord. Um. Then there's the 2005 with Kira Knightley as Lizzie and Matthew McFadden as Darcy. And I don't know. What did you think of it? I, I'm assuming you saw this one. Yes, my gosh, the judgment. No, so I saw this one. I liked it. I, I enjoyed it a lot. I do remember at the time people comparing it to the 1995 version. I think for people that seen that, um, the 1995 version, the miniseries is sort of like the peak. It's like the pinnacle mm-hmm. of straight adaptations. So I don't think it sort of lived up to it. Especially, not, I think that Colin Firth's Darcy is a hard Darcy to live up to. Yeah. Matthew McFadden tries, but I like him better in Succession. <laughs> Yeah, no, he's um, amazing yeah, he's amazing succession. But I think as a Darcy, like uh, he's fine. But Kira Knightley, I think, is really the star. I think she plays a great Lizzie. Yeah. Um, and I clearly Hollywood loved it because not they have like four Oscar nominations. I think Kira Knightley got nominated for like Best Actress for her role, which makes yeah. sense to me. She was quite good. She's a period film darling. I I can't hate yeah. her. Kira Knightley. I thought. She was good. She was really good. I think she was a good Lizzie. I thought he was a good Darcy. And I think he played Darcy even more awkwardly than Colin Firth. But you're just not, mm. you can't really beat Colin. Like, I don't know. It's just magic. Um, and so I think, yeah, he suffered because there was just that comparison. Um, yeah, I, really, I think it was that harder. Yeah. yeah. To like, you can't top him. I don't, I yeah. don't think it's possible. Yeah. So it was good. I think the cinematography was amazing. It was beautiful. The score was really beautiful. Like I would listen to it when I studied. It was like very nice. Um, mm. And then the other thing I guess I would say about it, which I didn't like, is like they wanted to like sort of, I don't know, erase or sort of some of the gentility that you associate with that time. And so like it just and like I think they were trying to be subversive. So like they the clothes were like grosser than they are in 1995 one like like lizzie's wearing like essentially like a burlap coat for a good portion of the movie which i don't understand their haircuts <laughs> are terrible like people look like they kind of are covered in dirt sometimes <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense to me and i get why they're maybe trying to do that to be like oh well you know you think it's so genteel like actually like it was not but so you know, whatever. And so at the very least, you could have like had her have like a pretty hairstyle, which they just <laughs> Her hair was always, up. her hair was always messy. But that's what I, I feel so like messy. it was like, it's, it was like, a, it was like a signifier of Lizzie's character. Like, oh, she doesn't care about, you know, yeah. remain like being prim and proper or like switching herself up because she's like smart and she reads. Um, yeah. So you can also have nice hair and read, please. Please, don't make yeah, <laughs> which is like actually a problem I had with one of them that we'll talk about 
briefly for a second, but like there's like a black um, Pride and Prejudice that was made like a year or so ago called Pride and Prejudice Atlanta. And then they did the same thing where Lizzie had this natty wig. Like it was the worst wig I've ever seen. That wig was, <laughs> yeah, so it's like a, it's like this Lifetime movie. Um, and that yeah. wig was such an eyesore. It actually, like, it felt like the wig was a character of its own and I couldn't concentrate on the actual faces of the actors. <laughs> yeah, because the wig, so I'm just going to put it out there. Just because Lizzie is, like, a free spirit and opinionated doesn't mean she should have bad hair. That's all. And not at all, please. Please, please don't do that to Lizzie. She deserves better, honestly. And that wig, honestly, should never exist. I hope they burned it. It was it just was like it looks like and because i've been guilty of this especially before i really understood how to wear wigs you buy like a beauty store wig and then you don't really take care of it or like you know or you start combing it out and it starts getting like kind of natty and then there are all these like negative spaces in it it doesn't look full mm-hmm. anymore you know what i'm talking about that was yes. <laughs> yeah yeah oh god honestly if we could like but like i wish we could show you guys a picture so you know what we're talking about but just google it you'll see it yeah <laughs> so okay so sorry that's my soapbox lizzie g- good hair for lizzie bennett um so then we get into retellings of pride and prejudice which there are so many we can't even like get into all of them but just a few to note all right i talked about this earlier bridget jones diary which is then made into a movie um starring renee zellweger then there's bride and prejudice which is also good right you um yeah i love bride and prejudice so bride and prejudice stars uh ashwarya rai who is a former miss world like one of the most beautiful women like on the planet frankly um, it's from the early 2000s, like a Bollywood version of it, basically. And it was written, directed by the same guy, Gurinda Chaha, woman. that wrote... Yeah. Woman, sorry. Sorry, mm-hmm. Gurinda. I knew you were a woman, too. I apologize. Um, <laughs> that wrote and directed Benelik Beckham. And so a lot of the elements from Benelik Beckham make it into this, um, into this, into this version of Pride and Prejudice. And I think that's why it really works for me. It's like very family-oriented. It just feels very full and rich mm-hmm. um, in an interesting way. And then... Darcy is played by a rich white guy. Um, and so it's it's just fun. It's like a Bollywood version. And I think it's one of the better um, retellings of Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. And the songs are really catchy. It's great. Yeah. It's really fun. Then there are like a loads of books. There's Unmarriageable that I read because you recommended it. That's really good. Yeah, I loved Unmarriageable. So that's in yeah. Pakistan, remember? And it's like um, yeah. a middle-class family and then like very wealthy family. Um which makes sense because it, it, we see the themes of class over and over and over again. And I think why it's interesting is that it really like takes the experiences of Pakistani society and like just adapts it for the movie. I'm sure for the, for the book. Um, mm-hmm. So we talk about caste, you know, and, you know, skin complexion and all that sort of stuff. It just feels um, very well done. It's funny. Like when you read all these retellings, like, you know, basically like the contours of the story, like what happens. Um, but it's very, very well done, and I enjoyed it a lot. And sorry, just to go back, the woman that wrote mm-hmm. and directed uh, Benelika Beckham, her name is Gurinder Chadha, just to get her name right, because people yeah. get my name and Nana's name wrong all the time, and we're not going to do that to another <laughs> woman. <laughs> Thank you. It's appreciated. And then a bunch of others. So this is just to give you an extent of like how people could reimagine Pride and Prejudice. So many ways. <laughs> oh, and then the last adaptation I'm just going to give a little bit of note to is like one that when we decided to do this Pride and Prejudice episode, it was pretty much 
deterred by my seeing that there had been like a Lifetime-esque movie called Pride and Prejudice Atlanta, which we I mentioned. Um, and so I was like, whoa, girl, we need to watch this. And then that got us to like revisit our love of Pride and Prejudice. So Pride and Prejudice Atlanta is fine. It's like the like production quality and script like writing of like a lifetime movie. And then I think I learned from Ison that it is. Yeah, it's after a lifetime movie, so it all track. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's basically like Darcy is like ambiguously wealthy black dude who's like come back to Atlanta who wants to be a congressman which feels like okay this is a bougie black story yeah for sure <laughs> it's like for his sure. daddy was a congressman he wants to be a congressman and then Lizzie is like some social justice warrior who cares about and sorry I don't actually mean to say that in a disparaging way because I like social justice yeah who doesn't <laughs> want to be like, like be a warrior for social justice it sounds awesome and we try yeah but I just mean <laughs> that her her character feels like such like a caricature of like someone who cares about social justice. So she's always like, what about the poor people or whatever? Um, and so I don't really want to get into it too much because it's like, is very, very loosely based on Pride and Prejudice. They take out a lot of elements. Um, and I think the most noteworthy thing about it is one that big that needs to change. Like, like, for, like send it to hellfire, please. Like, please, <laughs> honestly, what it deserves. And, and then to the cast and all these like black people I haven't seen in a while, which just like delighted me. So it had like Reginald Bell Johnson as Mr. Bennett. That's Carl Winslow, the guy who played Carl Winslow. Um, the the G the All Star Jack A Harry played. Ah, uh, love her, love her. Ninety percent of my joy just came from watching Jack A get to like be on screen and be funny again. Yeah, so that's the best like part. the. I, yeah, and I also just mention it because I think I always like I consumed so many adaptations, but I hadn't really seen any with black people. So like that was one that made it notable and. In fact, watching Pride and Prejudice Atlanta made me be like, we need like Pride and Prejudice, like Accra or Pride and Prejudice Lagos or, you know. Yeah, like, like or South Africa or something. I want to see an African version, yeah. I think. And not like, and yeah. not like a fake country like Zamunda, please. Like, just give us like an actual no. real, like, it doesn't have to be Wakanda. It doesn't yeah. have to be Zamunda. Like, just give us an actual like African nation and like, just like run with yeah. it. I think there's really something there. Um, yeah. That would be really interesting. So we like it. We might, you know, delve more into like these adaptations at a later date since we've already talked your ear off a lot about Pride and Prejudice mm -hmm. today. But I think for what we've been able to like talk about and clearly there's so we could have made this a four hour episode, honestly. So you should yep. thank us for sparing you, Rom Squad. Um, <laughs> it's clear that there are such like what makes Jane Austen such like an iconic writer and what makes Pride and Prejudice like probably her most iconic work. It's just how it seems to have these themes and these people that resonate with us years later, many, many years later, centuries later, um, because we see ourselves and we see people that we know in her characters um, and the things and things she talks about are things that seem to still matter today and will matter a hundred years from now, 200 years from now, frankly. And that's just because they're all very human experiences and things that everybody sort of has to grapple with, with marriage and money and family and love or lack thereof. Um, and I think that's something that Jane Austen does a really good job, job of, and she does it in a very witty way. Yay. So Nisa, I'm going to do something that you refuse to do. Oh God. It's a trip. 
you know that. <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, sorry. Let me let you have your floor. Okay, I'm not gonna laugh. All right, go for it. All right, I'm ready. It is a true universally acknowledged that any man in possession of a fortune must be in want of a wife. Thank really. You. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> Honestly, Nana, that was really well done. Honestly, I have to like, I'm clapping. I'm clapping. <laughs> oh my God, we should try one episode where we try to talk in British accents. So that's no, going to last absolutely. like four. I, I can't. <laughs> I can't do it. I apologize. I'm going to get my like BFF slash sister to come on and she can do the British accent. That's, yeah. that's, that's the only person that could actually do it justice. <laughs> <laughs> okay so that's the end of our um pride and prejudice epic pride and prejudice and i wow this is epic but i think the last thing we'll leave you with and we'll actually just make this section a little faster than we normally do but what is your happily ever after this is where we just kind of talk about the, what we consumed since the last episode in the romance genre that like really gave us life. So I'll sure. let Nissan start. Okay, sure. Okay, so I'll do this really quickly because we've talked enough. Uh, so mine, this episode is 10 Things I Hate About the Duke by Loretta Chase. And so basically it's like this, um, it's a mix of a retelling of Taming of the Shrew and 10 Things I Hate About You, but in like Victorian England. Um, and there's this woman that's like, um, a feminist for her time. So like a feminist as much as you could be in 1833. And there's this like Duke that this like super wealthy um, guy that's used to sort of like throwing his money around and being a bit of like a bruiser. And they like clash and he falls in love with her and he has to spend the entire novel like proving that he's worthy of her. And honestly, it's one of the mm -hmm. most well done sort of redemption stories of your typical sort of arrogant, really wealthy Duke of a hero. And it's just so good. Loretta Chase, I think, is one of my favorite romance novel authors, period. She wrote, like, probably one that people love universally called Lord of Scoundrels. And this book came out December last year. And it shows that she has not lost it at all. She's, it's just really, really well done. And that's my ATA for this episode. Okay. I love it. And in fact, I um, borrowed it from the library because you told me about it. So that's, like, good. Summit, yeah, that's next on my list of things to read. Um, so my HEA is actually called um, At Your Age, Eve Brown, and it's by Talia Hibbert, who is a Black British romance writer who Bison introduced me to, of course. <laughs> and I just I love Talia Hibbert. I think she writes really frothy, but like smart. And when I say frothy, it's a compliment. It's like you have this like great sort of dialogue and it's witty and it's fun. But like she always has characters who also have like sort of compelling needs and desires and like obstacles they're facing. So she does like this. She's recently done these series focused around three different sisters. The first is Chloe. The second is Danny and this is Evie and Eve is like basically um, the youngest child of a family who's kind of like the family black sheep slash like fuck up. And mm. she, her parents like say like, okay, you need to like figure out how to like start living and working on your own. She runs away or like, she like is like 
driving around, clearing her head. And then she comes across this um, bed and breakfast that needs a cook. And she mm. like is actually very good at cooking. So she gets the job, but it's reluctantly given to her by the owner who is a really like a sexy brooding guy, like not unlike Darcy, except for his kind of like, his, his has a mix of like sort of misanthropy. Like he doesn't love people, but he's also on the spectrum. Mm, and so it just makes him, it harder for him to interact with people. And so I love like these authors. I think a lot of romance, not a lot, but there are romance writers who are trying to deal more with like people who aren't necessarily like neurotypical and like, you know, um, and it, like flesh out their own romantic lives and like perspectives. And so I love the, um, the male protagonist. I thought he was like really like, I mean, he's like not my favorite of all time because Darcy is, but he's like very <laughs> like, you know, he's like sensitive and he loves her. And like Eve is trying to figure out how to be an adult and like spread her wings. And I think what I will say about Talia Hibbert is that she writes dialogue very well. Um, mm. And she also writes like sex very well. I think she's one of my favorite who writes like the erotic scenes. Um, and like, like it really, yeah, I think, I think she does a very good job of that. Like Talia Hibbert is good at that. And she's also good at writing like neuroatypical heroes, like you said. Um, exactly. Like a, a very, a very, um, I don't want to say kind way because that sounds condescending, but in a way that feels realistic and honest. Exactly. Oh, and the other thing about Eve, just to be clear, is that she's black, a black woman. And the other thing is like Talia Hibbert, she has written different characters, but a lot of her um, female protagonists are black women, which I love. And mm. they're, they're usually sort of like full figured plus size, like she makes it very clear they're, you know, like thick. And so I also appreciated that. Um, the last thing I'll say about Talia is I really think and this is like something I won't get into, but I'm going to make a case for it for every episode I can, is I don't think anybody does romantic comedies better than British people. I'm sorry. Mm, I just don't. Really? <laughs> yes, mm, I, disagree. I, I disagree. I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> to be continued. And so, you know, I'm, I am an Anglophile. I admit it. Um, you know, colonial mentality and all that. But I think that <laughs> Talia comes from a very grand tradition of like really smart, witty, um, sort of slightly sardonic romantic writing. So that's my happy, happily ever after. All right, Rom Squad, that sounds awesome. I'm actually really looking forward to the Talia Hibbert book. I put it on hold at the library because of you, Nana. So I Yay. am excited to check it out. And I'm reading the yes. the middle book in that trilogy, the one with Danny Brown, their sister, her sister, Evie Brown's sister. So it will be interesting to see how that plays out. Well, Rom Squad, I think we've talked your ear off long enough today, uh, but this is the OG Genesis and this is Nissan and <laughs> Nana. Nana. And so I'm taking <laughs> off the clickety-clack hills and putting on my sneakers and heading home to New Jersey. <laughs> Please let them be the ugly commuter sneakers. No designer sneakers here, please. <laughs> All right, guys. Talk soon. Talk to you right. in like two weeks. Bye. <laughs>